Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. For better or for worse, I'm still Jim. You are still Jim, which is what we like about you. Uh, or at least what I like about you. I can't speak to anyone else. They'll have to send us in their comments. But uh, well, That is your first mistake. Yeah, it's been a mistake I've made for the last 19 years. I think I'll stick with it. <laughs> How you doing today, Jim? Not too bad. I mean, you know, I, at the risk of doing the thing that I always do, reverting into talking about the weather as it affects my mood, it is the time of year <laughs> when that sort of thing tends to be more prescient than any other time of the year. But uh, it's been unseasonably warm here in the uh, great state of Wisconsin, which, you know, is really good for today. It's a little bit foreboding in terms of what it means uh, for the climate overall. For it to be 43 degrees today and, um, you know, uh, warm and there's still leaves on some of the trees outside. It's weird, (laughs) but uh, the kids are fucked, but I'll take it. Yay, global warming! Yay! Mm. Yeah, we had our one brush with snow uh, for this season so far was uh, last week. And I was like, they all panicked and sent the kids home on a three-hour delay and all this, that, and the other thing. And then it was gone the next day because it rained all over it, so... I get the caution, the overabundance of caution. I'd much rather that, especially as regards to our children, than anything else. But it seems like a lot of panic. It uh, does. It's it's just, in this area right now, it's just not that that cold. It was up to 51 degrees yesterday while I was in the the vehicle. So, just rainy. So, well, I tell you what, man. I told you I've been messing around with that... uh, Oculus, the, or the Meta Quest 2, right? That my yeah. uh, my buddy Frankie, friend of the show, Frankie Huertas, uh, gave me. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I really hadn't been enjoying it. Because I, I enjoyed playing the PlayStation VR. That was the only other VR I've had any kind of interaction with. And I really enjoyed playing games on there. PlayStation. Games like I Expect You to Die, which is like a reverse take on a Bond villain trope. And... And, and which would have been really germane to our conversation last week, but um, also things like Super Hot in VR or uh, Vader Immortal, which is also really good if you're a Star Wars fan like I am. Yeah, uh, I don't have a VR headset. I'm thinking about picking one up, but uh, I think I would probably, I don't know if I have enough room to set it up where I am, uh, especially because I'd want to play Beat Saber, and that's the kind of thing that if you get, if you play it correctly, <laughs> you run the risk of knocking over furniture. Uh, so I, I would probably need a little bit more room than I actually have to put one of those things up. That's funny, because that's where I was going with this story. Now, I'll tell you this. I don't let my daughter play um, just because I know how she is. She's been playing that Just Dance game on the PS5, and she'll oh, sure. dance her ass across the living room without watching, and all of a sudden she's inches from crashing into everything on my desk, which we all know my desk is full of kit that's going to just fall over and break and... So my wife's like, oh, you need to send her up. Stay in the middle of the room. And and so I can't imagine unleashing her with the Beat Saber headset on without being able to see anything. That kind of worries me a little bit. But she's been helping me uh, play. There's a game called Star Wars uh, Tales from the Galaxy's Edge, which is a tie-in game to Galaxy's Edge, which is the Star Wars, uh, not ride, but experience at Disney. And so it's a whole bunch of missions ba- based around uh, Doc Ondars and, and all this stuff. The, the droid workshop and, and the cantina that you can eat at while you're there. And it's really neat. Really fun. Kind of immersive. 
But what you can do with the Oculus is you don't have to be standing up to play it. You can set it to where it's called a stationary boundary. And so you can set it to where you're sitting down, which is ideal for me because I hate my legs and my back sucks and playing while I'm sitting down seems to be a better option. So I'm streaming to my, my foldable phone because it's got a really big screen for streaming. And my daughter's watching and she's she's participating that way. And she loves it. She loves being my little co-pilot, helping me find the little collectibles and things like that, the little droids and all that. And we were being attacked by a squadron of stormtroopers at a First Order resistance base. And so I go into my little, you go, we reach across your chest and you pull out the, uh, it's an inventory pouch. And in the inventory pouch, you've got like probe droids and, and things like that. And, or, uh, uh, the little droids like Luke Skywalker was with in, uh, yeah. in A New Hope. And, uh, so, and in my bag, I had thermal detonators. The mighty Jabba asks why he must pay 50,000. Hey, Yotto. Because he's holding a thermal detonator. And those are great because you can trigger it with the trigger on the uh, on the handset. And you you launch it. So I've launched a couple of these and, and I'm taking out stormtroopers left and right. It's getting to be really immense. And it's like, yeah, this is great. Blow them up. And so... I pull out another one, and I had to do it with my right hand. And so I grab it with my right hand, and I cock back, and right next to me is my desk, where I sit is my desk. And on mm -hmm. the side of my desk, I mounted little, um, there's 3D printed uh, controller holders for all three of my major controllers. That way they're sitting right beside me at any point by my recliner. So I've got my, uh, my Switch Pro controller. I've got my uh, PS5 controller, and I've got my Elite 2 Microsoft Xbox controller. You know those things are like 200 and something dollars. They're expensive. A little bit. They're expensive. A little bit, yeah. I love it. It's a great controller. I cocked my arm back to throw this detonator, and I whacked the, the Microsoft controller, sending oh it flying. <laughs> And it hits the ground, and when it hits the ground, little pieces of it come falling off because the little, the the sticks are attached by magnets. Yeah, it's got little thumbs. attachable finger paddles and weird, different little doodads yeah. that kind of hook up to it to make it uh, extra special for those customizable. Of us who like to customize that kind of yeah, shit. yeah. Well, all that shit went flying, so uh, we couldn't even find half of the little attachments until like two days later when I moved my recliner, and there they were sitting under it, but. And I know that's not good for the controller. I think it's got a little bit of a rattle in it now. And I hope to God it didn't well, break still, something integral. But uh, I mean, if, if you're, if, although it, it's a sobering moment, because if you're going to sit there and hold your daughter accountable for being aware of the uh, the space around her while she's working on the headset, I mean, you yourself, those those things are. I mean, if that that speaks to the the immersive nature of the medium mm -hmm. uh, that, that you you yourself also sort of like lost all sense of uh, of balance and direction while you were oh, you yeah. know, VRing it. And they got this great game as a last, a last aside. Now uh, I don't know if, if you played the, any of the uh, Oculus type games before or the PSVR games before. It's a game I've played on uh, the PSVR, and I just I got it for Oculus because it's such a fun game. It's in the vein of Beat Saber, but it's okay. like Beat Saber meets John Wick. And what ah, it okay. is, it's called Pistol Whip. And Pistol Whip 
is instead of things coming at you, you're running down this, this, it's in a first person view, you're running down, a, it's basically a corridor through buildings and whatnot, and it's different backgrounds. Well, already, already the running thing takes note of virtual reality, because I haven't run since the Clinton administration. <laughs> well, you don't have to move, thankfully. Stationary yeah. works just fine. But what it is, is you're moving through this environment, and bad guys are popping up left, right, and sideways, and the job is to shoot them with pistols. But the object of the game is to do it in a rhythm. So it's like gun ballet, gun foo, like Keanu Reeves in, in, in John Wick. And so it's it's really kind of, it, it's difficult because some villains require two, three, four shots. And, and you got to do it all kind of set to the rhythm of this uh, EDM soundtrack. And it's kind of, it's difficult, but it's fun. It's a lot of energy it's a lot of ducking and diving and moving and bending and your back will hate you to death after you're done with it but it's a whole lot of fun so i highly recommend it uh, beat saber and then pistol whip they're absolutely a load of fun well it, it, when when such time rolls around that i actually have the room to do something like that i think uh, i'll definitely take that under advisement yeah absolutely like i said you don't need a whole lot of room you just need I, i'd say punching distance you don't want to punch anything punching distance well i haven't punched anybody since the reagan administration so i think we're reaching even farther back for that skill set just say no it's probably for the so best. um we, we're actually going to cut the news segment a little bit short this week because uh we yeah. we, we have a guest uh, yeah. and we don't we don't always have a guest but it's nice when we do have a guest and um it's funny because uh part of the reason why um you asked me to co-host this podcast in the first place is because you came to me and said, hey, do you uh, you put something on Facebook saying, you know anybody who want to talk about Star Wars video games? And I said, uh, yeah, I got a friend who writes some Star Wars video games, and that's friend of the podcast, Aaron Diarive. Right. Uh, you said, uh, hey, who wants to come out and talk about Star Trek? Anybody know anybody? And I said, yeah, I got a buddy who does Star Trek uh, podcasts for the Roddenberry Company, and that's friend of the show, John Champion. So the, the story of my life is just adjacent to greatness. Um, I know a lot of really <laughs> cool people. I am not one of those cool people, but I know a lot of cool oh, people. Oh, shut up. And one of the people that I've known for a very, very long time, uh, actually is our guest on the show today, I'm not going to tell his story because his story is fascinating and I'm going to ask him to to, uh, to do a nice career recap, but um, <laughs> my friend uh, Kevin Sucker, uh, I've known Kevin for a long, long time. We used to work together ages and ages ago, back when we were both in local bands in the Milwaukee area, and uh, the, the, the sort of cool gig to make some, uh, some money when you weren't losing money with your band was... Uh, Slinging instruments at a uh, erstwhile uh, big box music store called Mars Music, and uh, and Kevin and I both found ourselves working there. <clears throat> I was in a band called Random Max at the time, uh, playing drums, and Kevin was fronting a band called Sister Moon that I love to this day. Uh, and whereas I went on to uh, kind of muck about and screw up and 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 step in a whole lot of shit in my life, trying to do a lot of really cool things, Kevin actually did go on to do a lot of cool things, and. Um, yeah, again, I'm not going to tell the story. I'll let him tell it. But uh, our, our our guest today on the podcast is uh, Grammy nominated producer, audio engineer, musician, raconteur, man about town, Kevin Suker. Welcome to the program. Thank you guys very much for having me. I want to add one extra bullet point. Yeah. To that introduction, I am also bald. Right. <laughs> Same. Not meaning you guys are bald and I'm joining the bald club, but. It's something that I'm very proud of that I've added to my Twitter uh, profile. <laughs> well, it's, the thing about you guys is you have really nicely shaped heads. Mine, because I'm six foot six and boots, is just full of bumps and knobs, and that's why I'm never seen in public without a hat, and often not in private without a hat either. So, but you're bully for both of you six. for having really pleasing shapes. To who's your heads. gonna Who's gonna tell you otherwise? 
Who's going to point I mean, at you and go like, you got an ugly head? Well, I mean, you'd be surprised. Children can be very cruel in public. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to the program, Kevin. It's uh, nice to have a fellow Kevin on board. Thank you, guys. This is fun. I was looking forward to it. And when, when Jim reached out, I, I thought this would be a, a great time. So thanks for asking. Well, one of the things that Jim and I both share in common is uh, and one of the things that we tag this show with, the tagline for every episode is, uh, fandom is everything. Everything is fandom. Fandom is everything. And and we stick by that. And the reason I made it so intentionally vague is because that leaves the door open for us to talk about literally anything we want. Because everything truly is fandom. So it wasn't, okay, maybe it wasn't me intentionally being vague. It was just an idea that, that fandom encapsulates a lot of things. Uh, and everything that we're a fan of, whether it's sports or, or sci-fi or video games or music in this particular case... It's a fandom. It's something we embrace, that we make a part of our lives, that we base parts of our lives around, and it's something that, you know, we share with other people. And so if we're interested in it, other people are going to be interested in it. And so uh, me and Jim have had a couple of different conversations as regards music. He's a musician. I'm a musician. So we've talked about uh, the, the art of being in bands, the playing shows, uh, what our favorite musicians are. Uh, we've had conversations talking about cover music and what our favorite covers are because there's a, a vast amount of cover music out there to find. Yeah, the, the first ever episode that I was a part of before I even got invited on to be a co-host was we talked about our favorite cover songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, when he mentioned uh, maybe doing an episode based around uh, tribute acts because uh, Jim's in a tribute act right now, a tribute to the 90s. Yeah. Uh, alt rock scene in the '90s. I'm I was in a tribute to uh, to Tool up in the Pacific Northwest. I did that for about uh, five years. Uh, it's something we're both uh, familiar with, and we both kind of grok to. And and he mentioned, hey, you know, I got a guy, and so so here we are. So uh, I guess this is a good opportunity for you to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Awesome. So I have been a songwriter and a musician as far back as I can remember. It was the first thing and uh, that I ever really wanted to do, even as a really, really young kid. I talk about uh, in our show here in Las Vegas that um, my career as a as a producer and as a, an engineer and as a mixer was, you know, the, 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 the foundation was laid in my very early years, uh, probably like all of us listening to the radio and listening to records and um you know i just i guess i always had this i always felt it was strange um attention to the details of the way music sounded Mm -hmm. and i couldn't i couldn't communicate that when i was 10 years old i couldn't explain why i liked the way certain songs sounded but now looking back that was like the beginning of what i call my producer ear hearing things in a certain way and being turned on musically uh, and arrangement wise and sonically um, you know going back to records like you know Sgt. Pepper and just classic amazing um, albums like the Michael Jackson Thriller record for an example and I mean there's 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 tons of them that I could talk about that were so impressive on me in my development but um, my career started as, um, you know, I was, a, I wanted to play keyboards. That was, I had, I had this, this, uh, sort of homegrown playing by ear 
never took any lessons, but I could hear something on the radio and I could mimic <laughs> it and I could learn the parts. And um, that turned into like learning the bass lines on the keyboard and it turned into faking some guitar parts and, you know, finger style drumming and, you know, in the big boom of, of, of MIDI and electronic music in the eighties, I was kind of a young kid that was on the forefront and had the, the, uh, the ability to learn the technology as it was basically coming out. So I was always involved on the technologic side of music. Um, and that played to the, the production side as well. That allowed me to understand how music gets deconstructed so you can reconstruct it in very, uh, hopefully, ways that uh, appeal to other people. Right. Um, but throughout that time, I was writing songs and I was performing uh, and playing keyboards as a side guy in, in some bands through uh, high school and out of high school. I joined a really popular uh, cover band in Milwaukee uh, that did a lot of touring. We played like 300, 230 some odd dates a year. Um, and it was kind of, um, we called it the minor leagues. They, they had signed some, uh, a couple of the artists got signed to some pretty big record deals. Uh, there's a young girl named Keedy who signed to Arista Records and she had a, a top um, 20 single on the, on, the, on the pop charts in the early 90s. And then Eric Benet uh, also got a record deal and I was his musical director at the time. Why do I know that name? keyboards in the band. He's, he's, he's an R&B singer that's from Milwaukee as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we were in a band that was called Gerard. Which was oh very God, popular, I love Gerard. Very popular band that uh, you know taught me a lot about entertaining audiences and when you're playing 200 plus dates a year it was full time you know you were we were living out of a van and traveling north and south dakota and minnesota and it really it gave a lot, a lot of experience at a very young age dang um from the performance side of things and um and if i'm not mistaken would, eric producing eric was what uh what, what got you your your grammy nomination correct yeah yeah we reconnected um uh, he went through a very public uh, divorce. Um, mm -hmm. He was married. Halle, Halle Berry. Berry. That's why I know the name. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And um, I owned a recording studio in downtown Milwaukee. And my parents ran into him at uh, Mayfair uh, Movie Theater at one point when he was home visiting family. And <clears throat> my mom uh, said, you should call Kevin and gave, gave uh, him my card. And it was just a really interesting story on how he was stuck into a into a, a challenging record deal at Warner Brothers, and um, he had turned in a record, and they weren't going to put it out because of all the the press that was circulating around his personal life. Um, so I just said, "Come to Milwaukee, let's make a record. Let's not worry about any money. Let's just make a record." And yeah. we did, and that's the the stuff that's on the wall. And and you know, I I tell my children this all the time. I've got I've got some older kids now. They're twenty two and twenty. I also have an eight-year-old, which is um, bizarre because you're like 25. I don't know. I'm 18. Who who knew? <laughs> Time lord. Um, horrible stuff. No, um, but I tell him, you know, like I was I was 38 years old when my life changed. Yeah. When that when when they talk about your break or you know you you you, you hear a lot of stories about somebody's big opportunity and I had been making records for years and I had been. Like you said, Jim, you know, make, finding other ways to finance this really expensive hobby that I was so <laughs> passionate about that I right. hoped someday. But I realized I was in, you know, living in Milwaukee at the time. There's no industry in Milwaukee. There's no way they really connect to Sad that but next true. 
stepping stone to kind of propel a career, not just passion, right? So I got very lucky in that regard. And it was my, you know, they say the definition of luck is, you know, just your preparedness and getting the right opportunity at the right time. And that's exactly what happened with me. I had made hundreds of records and I felt like I was pretty good at what I did. I, I felt I felt good. People liked the work that I did. Um, I'm always a stickler. I call myself, uh, you know, a bit of an audiophile and I'm a I'm a stickler for sound and making sure things can match up to some of the records that I have uh, a f love for. Um, and and at 38, my life changed. Um, Eric Eric's album was nominated for uh, Best Male Vocal R&B that year in 2009. Eric's a and tremendous artist, and you really got some great work out of him. R&B album of the year, too, which was a really big, yeah. big thing. And, and, you know, it changed. Like, things, you start thinking then, wow, if, holy cow, nominated, right? Now, if we win, like, that, that's another monumental difference. And, and we went to our first Grammy Awards that year. And, you know, they give out, like, 80 awards during the daytime before it leads up to the broadcast. So you're, you're all together with all your heroes in this giant room at the Staples Center in L.A. And they're going, you know, category by category. And people are getting up and giving their, you know, speeches and thank yous. And it gets to our categories. And they name, they, you know, they, they go through the list. And you don't win the first one. You don't win the second one. And all I remember is being like, wow that fucking sucks <laughs> like, it came it was it felt like you were like wow you really got to that place where it was awesome and you know so much excitement leading up to the grammys and everybody's cheering for you and your friends and family are like wow this is so cool and then you get there and then you kind of go to the parties afterwards and you're like oh it would have been so different had we had we won but you know they say it's um, it's an honor being nominated, and I say that's bullshit. It's an honor probably to win. Like, I, the, 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 what makes it even worse is that we were nominated um, again the next year for best. I'm going to look at my best traditional male R&B vocal for another song that I did, and um, again went and again lost. And I was like, okay, I'm not coming back to that because until I know. That if something I'm doing is going to be close to a lock, and that's the hard thing is you don't know because it's your peers that are voting, and and you do you do a campaign just like you would think of anything else. Like yeah, you start sending out emails to people that are members, and you start saying, "Listen to our record, and if you like it, please think of us when you're when you're making your choices." Just like I get, you know, when I'm making my choices as I vote too, um, and and then. Fast forward again, this is where it's crazy, is fast forward to the 2013, and my career took me into a place where I was uh, the president of a, of, a, of a management company, a record label, and a music publishing company with some partners out of Houston, Texas. And they were getting, they were oil guys that wanted to get in music and movies. And as I was setting up um, my side of the company, they were making a, getting ready to make a movie. And they were like, we don't have any entertainment experience can you help us finish the, the paperwork and the deal side, uh, bringing us on as executive producers of a film? And I was like, of course. So I read the script and it was phenomenal. And I heard all the actors that were attached and it was phenomenal. So I wound up being an uncredited executive producer in Dallas Buyers Club, which, mm. which is the film with Matthew yeah. McConaughey and Jared Leto. Yeah, um, well, we've all heard of it. Spent a 
Yeah, some Oscars definitely came out of that movie. And we won three Oscars. And so it just goes to show you, like, again, never made a movie in my life, but, you know, know enough about entertainment to know about how to put a deal together and and a VR touch point on our side of the thing and and negotiated our participation as a group. And, And here you are working in music all your life and getting to these Grammys and not winning anything and then just kind of falling into making a movie and winning three Oscars is like, that kind of, is, it's cool, but it sucked too. At the same point going, wow, I want I want the other awards. That's the ones that would be well, shit. Yeah. cool. What is it? You need an Oscar kind of and a Tony and a Grammy and a... The, the, the old EGOT. Yeah, yeah you got to get the EGOT. Uh, Tony, yeah. Grammy, and Emmy, yeah. You know, it's funny that that that, uh, that sort of is like the, the the way that things went because uh, you mentioned that there's no um, there's no industry in Milwaukee and there there still isn't there never was there have been a few bands that have cracked out of there that have uh, you know done some things obviously you know we all know the Violent Femmes we all know uh, Prince um, you know no Prince is Minneapolis so we, oh, you know we got to give the Twin Cities credit but uh, you know, the Bodines are out of Waukesha um, there's a band called Citizen King that had a uh, top ten hit on the on the alt rock charts and. But there were just as many bands that really should have. And I've kind of had this thing knocking around. Now, um, all of us have, have uh, I mean, some more than others, but all of us have some degree of filmmaking experience. I know, uh, St. you went to school for filmmaking. I spent about 11 minutes as a screenwriter in Hollywood. <laughs> that didn't really work out. And uh, obviously, you know, um, Kevin's worked on a couple, or he's worked on this Oscar-winning film. I've had this thing in my head for a while, that because, like you said, there's no real, there's no industry in Milwaukee, but there's definitely a scene. And I know that you and I both played with a ton of bands that, had they just fallen into the right ears, could have cracked out of that town and, and done more than they did. So I've kind of always had this thing having been part of that scene and having been in a band that I thought could have done pretty well if we'd only been heard and hadn't played with even more bands that I thought could have done great, that there's this, I had this documentary film this, that exists only in my head called The Scene That Wasn't, because we could have been, you know, Athens, Georgia, we could have been Seattle. If somebody, if there had been any presence at all in that town, there there are tons of bands, and I would count Random Max and Sister Moon among those bands that could have just, had they, had they only gotten heard, done the thing so i think it'd be fun to like dig up old pictures and old old you know vhs video and, and catch up with some of these cats who maybe didn't make it in the music business and went on to do other things and just kind of see where they're at and and, and relive some of that music but i don't know I, one of the thing, one of the reasons why um you know you've done so well and i haven't is because i you just always had that drive and that hustle and i just always had you know ideas and things i wanted to do but never really any dedication or discipline but that's another thing entirely, but I mean, you know, the the career that you've had, uh, you know, and I've, I I knew some of this, but I looked up your your Wikipedia page before we uh, we had you on, and, and uh, in addition to being Grammy nominated with Eric, um, you know, the, the the folks you've worked with in, in a uh, uh, a professional capacity have just been really, it's 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 kind of insane. Uh, just some of the bands that, that I I remember, there was uh, let's see, Train and Michelle Branch, Cheryl Crow. Um, Gloria Stefan, Leanne Rhymes, uh, Little Mix, Stevie Wonder, Gwen Stefani, a band that I love from Milwaukee uh, that I count among should have done better, the Guffs, who are fantastic. So, I mean, you know, you, you've, you've definitely done a ton of work that is that is intensely admirable. Um, but what I think is, it, 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 sort of in light of and in despite of that, um, what I kind of, the, the meat of what I wanted to kind of talk with you about today, and, and not just you know, all the amazing things you've done in music, but I've noticed a really interesting phenomenon in, in the world of particularly live music in the last couple of years. Now, obviously, we all are in bands, we all love live music. We, we did an episode on how much the live music experience can be so soul-affirming, but I, 
all throughout my 20s and 30s, most of my disposable income went to concerts. I think I've seen almost all the bands that, that have been on tour during that time that I wanted to see, with a couple of exceptions. But and some bands like something that I've noticed 15 times. Yeah, yeah, I have, I have seen a couple of bands a couple of times. But <laughs> one of the things that I think is interesting that I've noticed in my own concert-going experience in the last couple of years is that um, the sort of rise of the cover and tribute act has been very, very interesting to see. Um, in the last couple of years, I've seen just as many sort of, uh, I guess you'd call them tribute acts or cover acts than, than, than I have, um, you know, bands out there touring their own music. And I, I, I look at bands like Leonid and Friends, who is the sort of, uh, Russian Ukrainian, which is politically weird right now, uh, Chicago tribute band who are phenomenal. I've seen, uh, Mark Martell, who did some of the vocals for Freddie Mercury, who's not around to do them himself in the Bohemian Rhapsody film. Uh, he's got a, a queen act that he's touring with. I just saw my friend Travis who used to play with Better Than Ezra years ago. He was just until recently, I think they closed the show a week ago on the road, uh, drumming for uh, the uh, celebrating David Bowie, along with um, Adrian Ballou and uh, Todd Rundgren, Royston Langdon from Space Hog, and, um, and it's just been, that was a phenomenal show. Uh, Angela Moore from, uh, from from Fishbone was also on that tour. Amazing, and and I, looking back at that, I thought to myself, you know. There's, it's it's interesting to see that I'm I'm going to see bands do other folks' music, and something that I think is is really fun about you, Kevin, is that you have done so much work behind the decks. But I first met you as a performer, and you have recently returned to performance. Um, you are the uh, one of the front people, along with your your lovely wife Erin and, and some other folks in the band, uh, heading up a band called the Docksiders, who are America's favorite yacht rock band. And I happen to have, I mean, we're roughly the same age. I, I have a crazy amount of love for Yacht Rock because I grew up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is a very touristy, uh, lake-based kind of a town in southeastern Wisconsin. And, and every yuppie with the uh, the top dropped on their car driving around that town as a kid uh, was pouring out what they uh, call this this AM gold music. They call it easy listening, but I think that's almost a little derogatory. But all <laughs> these these golden radio hits from the late 70s and early 80s that make up sort of the um, the main repertoire of, of, of your your main gig right now, and it's just... Years ago, I would have called it a guilty pleasure. Now I'm old enough that I don't give a shit what anybody thinks. It's just a legitimate pleasure. I don't qualify it with any sort of, you know, uh, damning with faint praise language, but uh, I love this stuff, and the fact that you're out there doing it, I'm going to come see you guys in March, um, but I just love this music, and I love that you're doing it, and I love that you're so goddamn good at it. So I, that's kind of what I want to talk to you about, but before we really launch into that, can, can you give us a... Uh, a little bit of a background on how you sort of transitioned, or not that you're done with producing, obviously, you've got your finger in a lot of different areas, but, like, how you sort of, how it happened or how you made the decision to say, you know what, I really miss being on stage, I want to get back out there and perform again, and then sort of how the Docksiders came to be, and, and how you landed from, how you moved from Milwaukee to Vegas to take it's up really your first amazing. residency, the, yeah. the first resi Yacht Rock residency in Vegas at the Rio. Yeah, uh, it's awesome story, and thank yeah. you for asking that question because it's really nothing that I plan. And again, it's 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 evidence that like the things that I've planned or set out to do, you grind really hard on, and sometimes you get there, and sometimes yeah. you don't. But it's the things that you didn't really plan that I look back in my career and say, "Wow, I didn't plan on making a Grammy-nominated album. It just happened. Like we just did what we did." And the same thing goes for this Docksiders chapter of my life. I had not been on stage in 25 years. I was managing artists uh, and if essentially filling the whole of performance by being the conduit to get artists along their dream, you know, help them achieve their dreams in music. I had built up a network of 
of business relationships and I had a knack for the deal. Um, and that chase of the deal also filled the excitement that I used to get getting on stage. Like, you know, the, 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 the sweetening of the relationship and, and trying to close a certain aspect or coming up with ideas and, and grinding it out and making it happen really was fulfilling for me and still is to this day. Um, and I was managing a young kid uh, from Northbrook, Illinois. He had never been on stage before. In nine months, I had put him with Sean Mendez's writing and production team. We had done some demos that had exploded and he's in the millions of streams on Spotify and just a very short amount of time. Um, and I uh, had, when I was representing Eric as his manager, Eric Benet, uh, he was at ICM, so I had taken this kid to New York and, and got him a deal on the pop division uh, at ICM for his agent, and he was selected to be uh, Fifth Harmony's opening act on a stadium tour. And this kid had not even played a coffee house. He went wow. from <laughs> developing this sound and this music. Uh, we went from woodshedding these songs and really kind of developing his style and taking it and then figuring out that we needed to market this to this age and demo of people. Fifth Harmony was the perfect audience. We were lucky enough to get the deal. He's opening, he's, he's playing 20 minutes in front of 20,000 people a night. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And as I am communicating with his agent and we're doing business, I said to him, and this is in 2018-ish, 2017, I said, um, what's this deal with tribute acts that are selling in the industry we call hard tickets, right? Like it's right. a $35 ticket in a theater of a thousand seats. Like what's this trend going on? Like it's mind blowing. Cause it's like, I'm going to refer to like, like it as, as the next phase of Rooters, which was this local <laughs> club in Waukesha <laughs> that all of our bands played. Yeah. These yeah cover we did. Bands. And it's like we aged, but yet we aged into theaters and it's the strangest yeah. sort of concept. And he said, no, it's real. Like Eagle mania. And there are these Zeppelin tribute acts and mm -hmm. there are these Fleetwood Mac tribute acts and they're, and they're doing really well. And they're yeah. competing with other acts that are touring in the same rooms for, for sales. And I said, okay, I'm a huge fan of, of this Yacht Rock thing. I was listening to Sirius XM exclusively at the time. And, and like you, Jim, it, I had a, an idea to put a Guilty Pleasures band. It was even called Guilty Pleasures. Um, <laughs> back in uh, the early, early 2000s. And it never panned out because I was so immersed in tour managing and managing and, and making albums and, and yeah. mixing records and all that sort of stuff. So... I'm talking to this agent and he's like, I love that concept. He, and he know he knows the quality of work that I, I do. And, and he said, I'll sign you if you put this band together. I was like, and my brain went, wait a minute, I'm going to have a deal. I'm going to be represented by ICM, which is one of the largest agencies in the world. Yeah. And they're going to go find work for this band that in theory isn't even put together yet. But it was like, and then I did my research and I re I realized that there's a, a couple other bands that are, are doing this already and they're pretty popular and i went i know how to do this i think in a way that they don't know how to do it meaning i used to like with train and with cheryl crow and michelle branch i took all of their stems from the recording studio and i built their live touring rigs so i was able to take all the sounds like the big touring acts go out and they play the tracks like mm -hmm. it's it's not a secret it's what happens on, in the industry 
Um, and obviously there's bands that go out and play live too, but you know, and some certain produced acts have to take the strings off the record and they want to recreate it exactly for their audiences. And so I was doing this in the, in the 90s for these big acts and I went, if I'm gonna do this, I wanna recreate those songs as exact as possible mm-hmm. in a way that feels like, not like a cover band doing these songs, but as a tribute to the real original recordings and productions. And I put a band together and we literally, um, and it was like my friends that I'd always felt like this was an opportunity for them to do it at a level that they had never get, been given the opportunity to do it yet. You know, they had been playing clubs and festivals and to thinking we're going to be playing theaters and, and going on a tour bus and traveling around the country is a, is a, is a unique um, gift to be able to do at any point yeah. in time in your life. Um, and everybody was in, and my wife w- was in, and um, the first year was really cool, and we played a lot, and we went out to the East Coast and started developing a, f- a following, and we started putting some YouTube videos up that started getting some views, and uh, the second year was even better, and then we got hit by the pandemic. And uh. the pandemic, we had a, we had a huge summer tour planned. Yeah. Everything was just canceled and postponed. Uh, and then we came out of the pandemic stronger than I think we in, uh, we could have ever hoped for. And this last year, um, which is our end of our fourth ish year, fifth, four between four and five, we did thirty two dates. We were on a tour bus. We played thirty two cities uh, this summer. We had three weeks off to move to Las Vegas, and we uh, back in in uh, in January. Um, it's, uh, I don't know how much time you have, but there's a really unique story as to how we got to Las Vegas. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. It's all due to, um, Thanksgiving, 2021, uh, 2020, uh, in the morning, I get an email from a gentleman that said, I'm the oldest living hit songwriter on the planet. Go Google me. (laughs) And I Google the guy and he has written some of my all time favorite songs. He wrote tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. He wrote, Come on, Marianne for Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. He wrote uh, Knock Three Times for Tony Orlando. And the list goes on and on and on. And his songs are still in the tops of charts on countries all over the world. And he's uh, 81 years old. And he said, I want to talk to you. So he gives me his phone number and I call him. And he's like, I'm stumbling. Uh, I'm insomniac and I'm not, I don't sleep. And I'm, I'm up late looking at YouTube videos. And I'm listening to the Bee Gees, and in the right-hand column, there's this group called the Docksiders that are doing a version of Andy Gibbs' I Just Want to Be Your Everything. Which is fucking he's tremendous, like, by the way. Thanks. He, he clicks on it, and he's like, this is better than the fucking original. <laughs> he goes, who is this? Like, who singing, and who engineered, and who, how does this, this get produced like this? And so that's what, he reached out, and he reached out, and he said... Um, you guys are mind-blowingly good, and um, I have a song I wrote for the Bee Gees in 1977 that they didn't record because they re- only recorded songs that they wrote. Would you be interested in recording it with the Docs? No shit. And yes. I was like, first of all, <laughs> I'd be honored to even see if I could figure out how to record that song. So he sends me an MP3 of this song that he wrote for the Bee Gees, it sounded like I was opening a time capsule. The recording sounded straight out of the late 70s. It was incredible. Um, I tried and I worked on the song for about a month and I couldn't 
figure out how to get the chorus to hit the way that I felt that it should hit. And it was as, as I'm struggling with it, I said to him, in the meantime, do you have a song for a, a female singer? I said, my wife is an incredible singer. Facts. And as I'm trying to figure out this song, if you have another song that could be for a female, he goes, I have a song that Patsy Cline didn't record. Let me send it to you. So <laughs> yeah, I might have something like song, that. <laughs> right? He sends me this song. It's, it's mind-blowing. That song I heard from beginning to end. I produce it. We record it. I send it back to him. And now he's like, oh, my God. So he goes, okay. That was the test. <laughs> he goes, I wrote 80 songs during the pandemic with, um, I can't think of his name right now, the guy from the Black Keys. Dan, uh, Dan Auerbach. Dan Auerbach. He's like, Auerbach and I got together for eight months during the pandemic. We wrote 80 songs because he wanted to learn the classic art of song, pop songwriting. So he sends me six songs that he and Auerbach wrote. And I'm now immersed in making a Docksiders album that I had no clue that I was making. <laughs> and I made an album that we haven't released yet in the pandemic. And throughout this process, I said, his name's L. Russell Brown and his, his name's Larry. And I said, Larry, you don't know how full circle this is for me. At five years old, I used to stand in my grandparents' den in their apartment and I would play Tie Yellow Ribbon to the point where I thought I, ran, I ruined the record. And my grandpa told me that he used to have to go to the store and get new needles, which I didn't know what a needle was for a record player at the time. But I was wearing out needles listening to Tie Yellow Ribbon. And Tony Orlando always was like this huge influence for me, that sort of New Orleans swamp boogie pop soul thing that is so interestingly cool. And I said, as I'm making this record, we're probably like six or seven songs deep. I was like, I would like to record Yellow Ribbon, but I would like with your relationship and your blessing to ask Tony Orlando if he'd like to guest on the record with me. It would mean the world to me as the young five-year-old and yeah, full circle my relationship indeed. with my grandfather who introduced me to what I consider my path in music. And he, he gives me Tony's phone number and he calls Tony and he's like, you got to meet this guy. This guy is like, you got to meet this guy. Trust me. So Tony takes my call and he says, in memory of your grandfather, I would be honored to record this song with you. Nice. So this strikes up a relationship where, uh, and I call him my guardian angel to my face. Uh, Tony Orlando is one of my dearest, closest friends right now and is the reason why um, I asked him last January. We play annually at the Paps Theater, which is in our hometown of Milwaukee. Gorgeous and theater. We're coming back to play January 21st this year. And Jim, if you're around, I'd, I'd love for you to be our guest. Um, and Saint, I am there. You are always welcome to. If you're in town, it would be wonderful. You might have to hitch a um, ride. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Get out um, of here. But I asked Tony if he would mind joining the Docksiders on stage, and we would like to do four of his big songs with him fronting the group. And he said, I'll come to Milwaukee for you. So literally, this legend, Tony Orlando, uh, comes to Milwaukee. I pick him up on January 14th. We have dinner. Uh, January 15th, we played the show. January 16th, and this is word for word, I put him at the Fister to sleep. And he had a 6 a.m. flight. He's 78 years old and more energy than I have. 
uh, right now, and uh, and he and he's sitting alone at 4 a.m. because I told him I was gonna take. He's I'm gonna take a car to the airport. Don't get up and pick me. I'm like any moment I get to spend with you, I'm coming to spend with you. So I'm coming to pick you up. It was 4 a.m. He's sitting alone in the lobby of the Fister with his suitcase, and he looks at me and says, "Sit your fucking ass in the chair." <laughs> so I sit down. It's like Which is an alarmingly accurate Tony Orlando impression if you've heard the man he's, speak. He's the Godfather, right? Like he yeah. might as well be. He's like Las Vegas royalty, and he's a legend. He's a legend, right? Um, and he goes, "I can't believe what I heard last night." He goes, "I can't believe the way you've produced this show, the song selection, the vocalists that you have in the show." The yeah. The, the overall, he goes, I've been doing this 61 years, and I have to honestly tell you, I'm about to tell you something I've never said to anybody else. He said, I'm taking you to Vegas. <laughs> I'm getting you a deal in Vegas because this belongs in Las Vegas. I was like, true. Let's go. So <laughs> February, we went to Vegas. He had set up three dinners, and in the first dinner, we had a deal. And um, we played these 32 cities this summer, and in the process, we're like, Holy cow! We got to sell a house, and then we got to we got to talk to the rest of the band and say, "Guys, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity." Guess what? We're moving to Vegas, man. I guess we're all moving to Vegas, and everybody moved. Um, That's incredible. And and we opened a show on September eighth, and we closed the show on November eleventh. We were not in the right venue. We were not at the right hotel. The Rio is a kind of a, a forgotten about property right now, and they weren't participating in any. Uh, help getting our name out or I mean there were people that were coming in and they wouldn't even put our picture up behind the check-in desk or our sizzle reel so people even knew we were playing in the room and now it's funny I, have... I spent a little time I don't want to interrupt but real quick I spent a little time yeah. in Vegas I worked at an ad agency out there so I mean the, the promotion machine in Vegas is is and I worked with some, some casinos and some theaters it's like nothing else and I saw on your Facebook page and, and, and following the Docksiders on YouTube and on Facebook and on social that uh, any drop of promo that came from that show and any piece of word of mouth or anything, like uh, you, you talked to Johnny Katz, you know, uh, who, who came to talk to my ad agency about what it's like to try and promote things in Vegas. And it, it, was, it was you. You were doing everything, which, again, kind of ties back into that hustle that I saw you have back when we were, you know, still you know, slinging guitars and drum sets and shit in Milwaukee. And that was one of the things that when... You announced the show was closing. I was like, well, I know there are probably bigger things ahead. And I don't want to make any news about training confidence. I know you're staying in Vegas. There's no, there's, there's definitely announcements coming about where you're going to land. Um, but watching how that whole thing played out, I thought, you know, this, this, this smacks of being very familiar to me. That town is, is interesting in how it either promotes or doesn't promote things. But thank the, the, the Vegas gods that you actually were the one who was behind all that because the word of mouth and the, the, the local press and all that, that that came out of that show that put butts in seats at the Rio, which you're right, is, is not, you know, they I love the Rio, I just love Vegas in general, but I mean, there are there are better places for you guys to go, and, and any drop of juice you got at all to, to get people to come out and see that show, I, I, I saw your fingerprints all over it, and I was really glad they were there. Thanks, man, and, and that's exactly why I closed the show, like uh, I'm very grateful for John Katz. He's he's a he's a, a great guy, and he clearly has his finger on the pulse of, of entertainment yeah. in Las Vegas. And he he loves the Docksiders, and he could have not, you know, he could have said things that weren't flattering, and just like any any music critic could. But he really believes that there's a place for the Docksiders, and it was the critical success that we had here in Las Vegas. And the reviews that we've had were just, I mean, off the charts. I, 
I'm so grateful to just even say that because clearly, you know, people people like to be armchair quarterbacks and people sure. like to talk a whole bunch of crap, especially when it means nothing to them. Because it's easy. Yeah. Um, and we were, I'm very grateful. And it really felt like it gave me uh, uh, validity and the impact that my, my, was my intent to do to Las Vegas. So, like, make the Docksiders known quickly you know, let people we became a very quick talk of the, people were yeah. saying and you can go even look on social media that they're saying that we are the best show in las vegas mm-hmm. I, it's, we were here for two months um i believe we're a very good show it's flattering to think that people uh, would say that but i i know that we have a lot more to prove here and we have a really exciting announcement something that is almost uh you know, as my story continues to, at times, when it comes out of my mouth, feel kind of mind blowing at times. Even saying things about the records and the people I worked with, this next announcement is going to be mind blowing. Right. And we're going to announce uh, from the stage at the Paps Theater, uh, and then on social media that same day. Um, there's some contractual things that we have to wait before we announce for. Um, but it is really the next evolution, and it is the true intent of why I started the Docksiders. Um, Can't wait! I'm excited. Yeah. Really excited. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to uh, to announce that we've made some changes in the band, um, mm-hmm. which you know it's only natural. It happens. People's lives change. Things sure. go. But uh, the Docksiders are 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 moving um, and doing some really cool stuff coming up. Awesome. Well, I, I can't wait to hear it. I really can't because I mean, I when, when I heard that you guys are moving to Vegas, I thought that absolutely tracks. That is really where you need to be because I mean, I know as, as as much as it's great to be on a tour bus and to be out there and bringing the show to people, um, the people coming to the show to have that residency to be an attraction, uh, you know. And and Vegas, it's I have such crazy love for Vegas. Vegas is my second home. I have you know often one of the things I love most about Vegas is that Vegas just genuinely wants to entertain you. Vegas genuinely does not give a shit how much money you have in your pocket. I've gone to Vegas for job interviews when I was broke trying to move back there, and uh, I've had 100 bucks in my pocket, and I was able to stay at the El Cortez on Fremont for a week. Who was an old client at my old agency, and I love them, and they, they really appreciated my work, which is why I still go stay there. That, and they're also one of the most... It's the nicest hotel room you can get in Vegas for that price. And uh, you can walk up and down Fremont, and there's entertainment just hanging out 10 feet from you. There's those side street stages that, that bands will play, cover bands, or even like sometimes I'll do like the uh, the Saturday Night Music series during the summer, and they'll have package tours. And uh, you can go down to Binion's and get a burger for six bucks. Vegas was happy to take your money if you got it to spend. If you want to drop hundreds of the thousands at the roulette tables and, and do bottle service at the clubs, they'll take your money. But if, if you're there with 100 bucks in your pocket, Vegas is like, we got free entertainment down the road. Just take a walk, friend. Vegas does not care how much money you have they just want to entertain you and i I have always loved that about that town and then the job that i have now i'm a travel writer i work for uh an agency that that works with with uh luxury resorts but i I took this job because it was uh a, a way to get back to vegas and the job itself is still in vegas even though i'm here but my first day was march 9th of 2020 and we i worked monday tuesday wednesday thursday in my office and then friday the 13th of march they said yeah there's this bug going around we might want to take our laptops and work from home and the office never reopened and now here I am but 
Vegas is just such an amazing town. I'm heading back there with my girlfriend to see Depeche Mode at the T-Mobile Center in March, and we're making a week out of it. And uh, I'm going to keep I'm keeping my ear to the ground pretty hard to find out where you guys are going to be because I want to see you at least once. Um, because I you, you you've played a lot in town here, but I've never been here at the same time you've been here, and I've always wanted to catch you guys. So it's happening. It's just going to happen in our uh, our shared adopted hometown of Vegas. Absolutely. But you touched on something interesting that I kind of want to branch off and, and, and meander on a little bit, and that is this whole thing about tribute bands, cover bands, selling these hard tickets, which is something that I, before I even thought about, I want to talk to Kevin about this, I had noticed in my own concert-going history, uh, going to see these bands, and I wanted to pick your brain as far as what we might be able to attribute that to. Because I, I feel like it's more than nostalgia. I feel like it's more than... I mean, my band that I'm working with right now, we do a... Um, we're trying to do for 90s alt rock what the Docksiders do for yacht rock, and that's to kind of just like bring this stuff back, create it as on stage as close to the recording as we possibly can, um, and that's why my band didn't really hire a singer in me as much as they hired a third-rate impressionist, because um, I can sort of do an Eddie Vedder, I can sort of do a Lane Staley, I can kind of crank out a Chris Cornell if I've had enough water. Um, but there's something more to it that I have felt from people that have come to see us. I know that you, doing it on a much larger scale, have probably seen and felt the same thing, where it's not just nostalgia. It's, it's something to do with, and this is not to denigrate songwriters of today that you would work with, or even you as a songwriter, but there's something different about, about music from before that really hits in a way that's more than just... I loved this when I was younger, like, you know, me putting on Queen records and dancing in the garage, or you listening to Tony Orlando records in the garage. There's something else to it, and I, I kind of wanted to get your take on what you think might be fueling this. I want to hear other people do the music that I grew up with if those bands aren't around to do it themselves anymore. I love it. I think I have it figured out, actually. And, loved it. And I'm not saying that to be conceited or, like, I, I'm, I, I'm always a very humble person, but I... I really do think I've figured out the why, like why people are going to see acts like the Docksiders. And um, it, it doesn't have as much to do with, um, you know, the production necessarily that I'm putting on stage because, you know, people will come and see us that haven't seen us before, but they've heard that we're good. But I think the, I think the reason that people are spending money going to see tribute acts right now is because there is a giant hole in what is offered to a specific age group of people. Yeah. There is no new music being created for this age group of people. Right. So they're forced to live in nostalgia, right? So that's one, one reason over here. The other thing is, I think, and this is just my two cents, doing a 90s tribute is about a decade too early right now. Because mm. you've got this aging group of people that seems to be hitting on full cylinders, which is that 70s, 80s, when they were teens in that 70s, 80s yeah. time period, this is full steam ahead. That's why you've got the Eagles. That's why you've got the Fleetwood Macs. That's why not, you have no shortage of the U2s and the Depeche Modes and the other 90s tribute acts, but I think those acts will be bigger in about a decade. Well, then I'm glad I'm because starting now so that we can actually get our feet under us a little bit before we really try and play sure, anybody sure, sure. in a larger like a, a venue group, than what we get in Milwaukee. One of our biggest competitors has been doing it 11 years longer than us. And case in point, right? They're probably, you know, in one aspect, from, from what's described of us in the media, there are three national yacht rock 
tribute acts. We are very grateful to be considered as one of those three, but there's two others. One that's located in Atlanta, that's mm -hmm. probably the one that's been doing it the longest. And then there's one that's in LA, and they've been they've been doing it uh, longer than we have, but they're also playing in you know the second largest market in the country. And yeah. they're, they're, they're building a, a different thing, but they're doing it very differently. To me, they, they're a little bit more tongue in cheek. It, it's almost like we're going to bring you along for the joke of the, the, the shticky sort of um, smooth rock thing. Whereas we are trying to do it very full on embracing and, and loving and really kind of, yeah. And, and, and there's age differences in the groups. Like they're much younger than we are. And we are what we consider the OGs of the, 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 the genre, because we kind of are, I'm at the young end of the scale. And if Clay Connor, our sax player, were sitting here with me, he's the oldest guy in the band and he's 59. He's, I'm more on the, the, the really late seventies, but early eighties vibe of what we do around and for it the first time correct and he's in it on the fully on the 70s side of things he's like when it got into the 80s he's like man i don't even want to hear some of that that kind of music so i think it's that it's that 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 the age of the of the audience that wants to support that particular uh music i think it just needs to I, I just personally think that the 90s, it, it, it's going to have, it, it's like anything else, right? Everything comes back around. and In 20-year cycles. Groups, yeah, it, it cycles. But And I used to think differently about what the cycle meant, but it's just the cycle meaning that the, that age group of people don't, they, they don't have much that's marketed to them anymore. Like no. they're, they're, you know, no joke. They're hard to figure out how to get their tickets on their phones and they're, they're not the best on social media, but yet... Um, you know, and there's no new music. But they've like, got the most discretionary spending money, so. And that's the key. They have monies to go spend $150 on tickets and go out for a couple hundred dollar meal. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, they want a night that they're, they're in nostalgia where they feel good. And we say it on stage. It's like this music takes you back to a time where you didn't have cell phones and you didn't yeah. have the stresses of today. You had and to you live in the moment. bombarded with social media and constant 124 hour a day information like you can put your phones down and you can let this music take you back on a journey to a, a simpler time and and i think that's i think for me that's what feels like why i know that that's what it could be um, i have an idea as well that i, I kind of wanted to float past you since you've got the the industry uh experience uh, a lot of what i've seen with tribute and cover acts at least up here in the pacific northwest has been a lot of uh, like your Metallicas or your ACDCs or your uh, Judas Priest or Black Sabbath. And your your, your band was uh, was was a Tool tribute. Tool tribute, right? And so the, what I've seen uh, is a lot of possibly inaccessible bands uh, tickets that are more like for, let's let's take for instance Metallica. Metallica just announced their world tour starting in 2023, going well into 2024. The dates in uh, Seattle are in August and September of 2024. And yet those tickets are selling out as of right now. And so uh, I went on to Ticketmaster to look for tickets, and they're 3 and 4 and $500 for the pair of nights. And I think we have a couple of different... Uh, 
uh, Metallica tribute acts that are going around the area. And one in particular I remember, um, I saw them at a venue in uh, Pierce County a few years ago, uh, and they are called uh, Blistered Earth, and they're a Metallica tribute. And if you closed your eyes and listened to just the instrumentation, it's CD quality. It's note for note perfect. It's it's exact. They use the same equipment. They use the same tone settings. Everything is exact. The lead singer doesn't sound 100% like James Hetfield, but, I mean, you're getting CD quality, basically. And I think a large part of what I think is, as at least the, the rise around here for tribute acts, is uh, a lot of times these concerts are either financially in, inaccessible or um, due to death. They just don't come or, to your town. Well, they don't come to your town. Or like people like Bowie tributes. Bowie's not making any new records. Bowie's not touring anymore. Uh, things like Mark Martell doing the Queen thing. Freddie's gone. And so yeah. anybody who wants to get a taste of that kind of music uh, will have to go to a, a reputable tribute act. And and that's what I think is driving the, the market up for tribute acts. And I wanted to kind of know what you felt about that. I think it's a great, great concept. I, I, would, I would tend to agree with you. Absolutely. You know... Um, it's interesting. Like at, at one point I felt, I felt challenged when you start looking around at like multiple queen acts or multiple yacht rock acts around the country. It's like, there's a finite amount of songs you can play. Right. Yeah. Right. Like if like, I think it's even narrower, if you're doing a Bowie tribute, act, yeah, right, right. You're like, doing one artist. Right. If you're doing one artist, like, yeah, you can you can pick through their catalog of album cuts and make the act different enough from another act that's doing songs of that artist. But yet, you know, maybe they're not choosing the same deeper cuts if they're you know, doing any of what would be considered like the, the more well-known songs all the same. And it's the same thing with Yacht Rock. It's like how, how many Yacht Rock bands do there need to be? There's a Yacht Rock group in every city right now you can you know there's there's new ones i'm discovering all the time in phoenix and in minneapolis and right uh, and all over all over the east coast and what makes you know speaking just from my chair what makes the docksiders m you know more unique or why would somebody buy a ticket to us when they could see a ticket you know from someone in their hometown and it's the same problem that we had in milwaukee like you can't be a prophet in your hometown. <laughs> Eric Benet, Eric Benet, uh, we did a tour with Fantasia. Yeah. Uh, this is in 2012. And Eric Benet, we had to cancel one date on the tour. And it was the Milwaukee show at the Riverside Theater. <laughs> and I, as his manager at the time, couldn't understand. I couldn't. I was furious. I was like, are you kidding me? Who's like, not going to come see Logo Boy Done Good? I mean, Eric, was, he's, he's one of the few people we can point to, you know, to, to actually escape the surly bonds of Milwaukee and do something beyond our town that actually had an impact on the national level. But it goes back to your earlier point, Jim, about, like, creating a documentary about what M Milwaukee, like, the title of it, could be something like we almost could have been famous. Or yeah, the like, scene that wasn't is the thing I've had in my head forever. The scene that could have been, right? Like there's so many talented people, yet Milwaukee 
would rather talk shit about each other yeah. than rally around and support and come out and pay a cover charge to go to somebody's gig. Like, I, I, I didn't need to be added to anybody's guest list. Like, I wanted to go out and put 10 bucks or 12 bucks or $6 in the band's pocket because that's how you build a scene. And it, if you yeah. look at, at Seattle or you look at Minneapolis, that's how they did it. Like, yeah. they worked together. Like, Oh, Minneapolis, I, I, I won't talk shit about Milwaukee because I have so many friends of mine that, that I love that came from Milwaukee that are still slogging it out trying to make it. Um, yeah. Like Johnny Calarco, I did not, I wasn't able to make it, but uh, he just did um, a tribute to our, our friend Keith, who just passed recently, who was, you, you, he played with you in Sister Moon, and, and I loved Keith very deeply, I know you did too, and, and, and so, but he put that show on at Turner Hall, and it was well attended, but it's, I almost, I remember looking at that thinking, it's sad, somebody has to pass away before they get any fucking respect in that town, but Minneapolis, on the other hand, um, I, I moved to Minneapolis for a job in around 2007. I was there for about six years, and I was in a couple of bands up there as a drummer. And that town, because it did have a scene at one point, because Husker Du and, and, and the Replacements and, and Prince and Semisonic and, and all these other bands were a thing there for Soul Asylum, um, that scene was aware of itself in a way that Milwaukee, because Milwaukee never really had any, like a, we had some acts that came out of town, but there, there wasn't, we didn't have like a moment culturally. Um, so... It was really sort of weirdly incestuous and strangely status-seeking because if somebody put together a band and it started to do well or started to get some traction and then uh, somebody else, uh, you know, poached one of your members or somebody else had an opportunity to join another band that maybe had a little bit more heat on them in town at the time, it was impossible to try and hold anything together because everybody was looking to be that next band that cracked out and reclaimed that, that fire from that town. And so they were aware of their status in a way that... Milwaukee wasn't because we never had that status. That was really strange and sort of uncomfortable. But, you know, nonetheless, I mean, you're right. Milwaukee has always kind of had this real underdog sort of redheaded stepchild kind of status as being like this town that has so much going on, but it's just so localized. I mean, and part of that, I think, is, is that it's, it's a blue-collar, uh, Rust Belt kind of a town that does have an amazing museum, that does have a ballet, that it's got great theater and great bands, but, you know, people still look at it as being this real sort of working class town and so yep. coming up with an identity for it that that could be expressed in a musical sense by a scene quote unquote is, is something that has been difficult but yeah it's just a shame to see so much blown potential yeah it really is and you know i don't know if you know but during the pandemic i took the job as the executive director of radio Milan. yeah yeah and i love it i was there for two years and i learned a lot you know part of the attraction to that gig for me was how much Radio Milwaukee was into, you know, supporting the local music thing. Yeah. So I got to learn a lot about, you know, uh, a different aspect of the local music community, you know, that sort of independent yeah. scene, you know, that's not on what would be considered the commercial side. And I learned that there still was not, um, it, you know, the same thing rang true like 20 years removed from me in the 90, early 90s when I was doing Sister Moon, and I was drastically looking for community support yeah. to lift us up to be that next thing. And, you know, like we had a number one single just outside of Minneapolis. We mm -hmm. had a number one single just outside of Indianapolis. I could get WKTI at the time to spin us on the Like It or Launch It program, but you couldn't get anybody to really freaking double down and say, 
these guys are the real deal. There was an hour of local music called Milwaukee Rocks on 1021. And yeah. even that, they were just playing like rock and alternative, which was kind of their format at the time. That was it. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it's the same. Like, I learned it, I learned it uh, you know, two years ago. Uh, the Milwaukee music community does not support each other in the way mm. that I have witnessed Nashville, that I have witnessed Los Angeles or New York, where I lived for a while. Um, it's a very, um, like I said, Milwaukee would rather talk shit about each other <laughs> than support, and it's that's that I think that's why there's a lack of uh, of of elevation of the entire community. Um, not to say that you can't find really talented people that are going to break out, right? There's going to be another Violent Femmes. There's going to be another Eric Benet. There's just going to be. You know, it's just sheer numbers at that point in time. But creating that scene requires there to be a community there first and not people just grabbing each other and trying to shove them down to make themselves seem higher. And then think about the clubs that have gone away since the 90s, too. Like, oh, God, the Globe and BBC. I think I saw... I, I was trying to try to remember where the first time was that I saw... Sister Moon, and I'm getting very old, and we're talking like, you know, early to mid-90s here, and I want to say it was either the Globe or BBC, I remember going to the East Side, and both those clubs are gone. I mean, Random Max did three, two of our three CD release parties at the Globe, and the Globe is a coffee shop now. Yeah. So, you know, a and lot of the venues have gone away. A lot that's of the, worldwide, that, too. I mean, that's uh, yeah. all over Seattle, Tacoma, uh, Olympia even, down where I live. Uh, lots of music venues have closed down. And it's it's. And I, I don't know. Did, did Seattle ever really have like a music scene? I can't remember. Yeah, there was a little. As thing. I as I go, as I'm looking forward to gig this week, I want to play three quarters of that shit. Aren't the Wiggles from uh, Seattle? Yeah. Aren't the Wiggles from Seattle? No, I Who's believe that? they are from Australia. But no, I'm no, I'm joking. <laughs> the Wiggles, you know, your tribute, yeah, other tribute act. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a couple of Wiggles tribute acts that are that are kind of ready to crack out right now. But yeah, the other, like the, I think that you're right, Kevin. That sense of like futility. Like I think Milwaukee has a little bit of a chip on its shoulder because of exactly the phenomenon I described. Because anybody who's been in a band in Milwaukee knows whether or not they want to pat themselves on the back that hard. That you know my band could have made it or whatever. But I think that we've seen enough bands in this area but then again what are the bands that actually you know you haven't uh you i mean you, you've been in town recently and the bands that anybody talks about the toys are still tearing it up uh, almighty vinyl is still tearing it up my old band random max uh it, it, we started off as an original band we, we made a couple of records with mike hoffman um and we he we really tried to, to try and crack out and be the next band that did something outside of town, and uh, it's twenty five almost thirty years on now for that band, and they completely switched to covers and they play Summerfest and the State Fair now, so there's just sort of a um, a sense of, and I don't want to be a downer about it, but you're absolutely right. There's a sense of uh, you know this town has a lot of talent, but because nobody pays attention to us, why should we even pay attention to ourselves? Yeah, I I think you know I think if there was just a way that every band in town went out and supported each other and yeah. went to their shows and like became friends fucking stay this, after like, your set and watch the other th- bands that's the thing man it's it's that's what you got in minneapolis i remember being in minneapolis i never lived there but i remember visiting in the 90s our drummer at the time in sister moon his sister and brother-in-law lived in in the cities and we would go up there frequently because we had a free place to crash yeah um but I remember going to like you know, Doctor Mambo's Combo at Bunkers on Monday nights, and everybody on the planet that was anybody musician-wise in Minneapolis was there. 
Yeah. And, you know, you had Prince's drummer playing drums, and you had everybody, everybody was there. And then Tuesday night, same thing. Like, everybody in the scene yeah. came together, and they hung out, and there wasn't this sort of like, oh, we're not talking to dude because he thinks he's better than everybody. It's, you know, it's, 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 it, Milwaukee's always hit me that way. You know, I, in the 90s, I used to have a chip on my shoulder when we would go, uh, you know, we had a manager at the time in New York and, and, and she was shopping us for, for record deals. And I was like debating about saying I was from Chicago just because I hated how Milwaukee yeah. treated me. And at least there were some bands from Chicago like, at the time, like Smashing Pumpkins but... and, uh, and, and Smoking Popes that were making some waves. Mm-hmm. And so that town had a scene that you could refer to. But shit, I, I played a show at Bunkers. I played a show at Bunkers with my band in Minneapolis. We were called uh, Mass Drastic, and we opened for a guy whose name I can't remember, but he wound up on The Voice a couple years later. So that town definitely has... You're right. They, they may be a little bit cutthroat, but they definitely support each other in a way that I have not seen and never did see from Milwaukee and kind of still don't. Mm-hmm. You've got some... Be- you got some cheerleaders in Milwaukee. There's some great people that have tried very yeah. hard. You know, Doug Johnson and David Silbaugh put the yellow pages oh, together. Yeah. And that was like, you know, like a, a conference that gets the community together, bringing in guys like Butch Vig and, mm-hmm. and other people to like help kind of, you know, herd the cats, so to speak, yeah. and say, this is what we've done. You guys got a ton of talent here. Um, I just think it's, you know, it's, it's the... It's the uh, it's lost on the youth, I think, right? Yeah, I know. I know you know Mindy Novotny. She used to be with, with uh, eighty-eight nine a long, long time ago, and she brought us in um, a random accent to do a couple of uh, acoustic sets, uh, just in the studio to promote some shows. That whenever we would play Summerfest or whenever we had like a, a CD release party, she'd bring us in and we'd do that. And so, yeah, there's definitely backers. There's there's, there's people there, but they kind of they, they it seems to be the exception rather than the rule, and it just really kind of is heartbreaking right. to see that it's. It's just it never got the attention it deserved, and and you I know I mean like you said Eric having to cancel his, the the one show he had to cancel was his Milwaukee show, and uh, you know the Docksiders having to go to uh, to Vegas to find their audience. It's just not that you didn't do well here, but I mean it's just yeah this town doesn't we don't know what we have. Yeah, you know I, I'm grateful for Milwaukee because I yeah. feel like it it gave me the 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 grounding that I needed to have some of the success that I've had um, because I always feel like uh, I can do better even when we're doing wonderful things, I'm always kind of looking over my shoulder going, gosh, I could do better than this. I, you know, I, I, I should be striving to do better so I can prove why I should be here. And I think it's that blue collar thought process of like, yeah, I'm never satisfied and that we always try to work our hardest because we know we have to work harder than the people sometimes yeah. in LA or in New York. Right. Um, to, to prove themselves. So like, um, you know, no lie, you know, when, when, when we're flying over the lake and we're, we're coming home, it still feels like home, even though I'm living in Vegas yeah. and we love Las Vegas. Had no clue we'd love it the way we do, but we adore it here. Um, but, you know, and, and there's something magical about, you know, how Milwaukee adopted the Docksiders. I, yeah. I couldn't have predicted that because I thought I knew, you know, from my experience, well, here we go. I'm going to play here and clearly we've got to start it here because you know nobody in chicago or detroit or nashville is going to book the docksiders just yet because they don't we don't have any track record of you know what it is can we what can we show how many tickets have we sold so um why would anybody else take a flyer so let's figure out how to develop it here and i think we we did we did just fine we did we did what we wanted to do and we have a lot of friends and family and others that i don't even know that support 
what we're doing in in Milwaukee, which I'm very grateful for. And you know, like we again, it would have been really easy to cancel the Paps Theater show because we're living somewhere else now. Now we've yeah. got challenges like how do you get the backline? Yep. To Milwaukee. Now we did the deal before we were living in Vegas, so there's not backline provided. And how now there's flights, and and now it's Milwaukee's a, our hometown show is a fly date. It's not. It's not easy just kind of showing up and doing the show. And and I said to the rest of the guys, I was like, you know, we owe it to our hometown. Like, it might, we might not net what we were hoping to net from this, but the let's 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 never cancel Milwaukee. Milwaukee. You know, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. Not you just because I want to go to that show, but also because I <laughs> I have I'm gonna ding myself a little bit here for kind of descending into bitterness a little bit and kind of ding in this town. But uh, ending on a positive note like that with the story is a good thing, good place to be. Because yeah, I mean, for all of its its shortcomings, Milwaukee definitely it's it's a town full of scrappy upstarts and right. the, the underdogs who who you just really want to cheer for and and. Uh, and so that that is has always kind of been one of its strengths. So um, I will definitely be at your show when you come back home, and I will definitely see you a couple months later in March because I love what you guys are doing. And it's funny, like I, I'm not going to give any juice to your competition, but I did see the guys from Atlanta a couple of times, um, just out in the world. And that's when I and then I, I saw that you were starting up yours, and I thought, fucking yes, yes, nobody better. Um, who's, who's, who's professional, who's dedicated, who's talented to be able to, to kind of do this in Milwaukee and do it a little differently. Cause those guys kind of like do like the live performance angle of it and you guys are recreating the recordings. So I, you know, even though there's sort of like another yacht rock band who maybe has a little bit of a head start, you're doing different things. And I think even though you're sort of like in the same sandbox, you're making different castles and opposite ends of it. And I really appreciate that you're doing that because I think there's, you, you've proven just being out there and, and, and you know, packing uh, you know, rooms in Vegas and, and selling out shows across the country that there's room enough for both. And, and that, uh, you, you know, if you bring enough passion and enough love and enough authenticity to something, then people are going to respond to that. That's it. And, and that's what I've learned as I've gotten older. It's like, if, if I do it from the right place, if it's coming from my heart, yeah, that's all that matters. Like, you know, there's, uh, Tony Orlando just said in a, in a, a podcast that he did with Kevin Jonas senior, um, money follows product yeah it's not the other way it doesn't product wait product follows yeah money follows product meaning you put a great product out and the money comes it's not the other way you don't you don't force the money into something that isn't right and 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 i appreciate that you know and and i and i try to say that uh, in every any time that i knock milwaukee or i have my my druthers of observations you know it's the full picture you have to yep. you have to talk about both sides you know there's great and there's not so great you know i wish my hometown would have supported uh the the 20 year old kevin Sucker and the 20 year old jim schweitzer differently i really do i wish it would have it would have supported us all differently but it didn't but it allowed us to get to where we are here now and how you and i are sitting on in different parts of the country having a conversation yeah. about our experiences and our passions and our loves and our struggles and to me it's the journey mm-hmm. it, at, at 51 soon to be 52 um what i've learned more than anything is to just be grateful for the journey could things be better yes could things be worse yes let's just be grateful for what today is and 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 be there again tomorrow to hopefully get up and just 
put some positivity back into the world. Absolutely. You know, I can't think of a better of a better note to end on. And I know that we a couple of us have a hard out, and I want to give you back some of your afternoon. But that's that that's a great place to kind of uh, put a button on it because you're absolutely right. Just to kind of to look back on, I, I I know that I would not be the person that I was if not for the experiences that I've had in music. And um, you know, it's it's allowed me to meet some some amazing people, um, in the present company included, and to, uh, to to really look back and say that yeah, there were some great 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 bands that we shared stages with and shared a scene with back in the day that probably could have done amazing things had they just had the correct audience. But at the same time, I mean, you can't take away from any of what we actually did. We, we, we even though p- people maybe on the outside didn't notice, and in some cases, people on the inside didn't even notice. I th- I still think if if we could do if we could lay the groundwork to getting us where we are. And to have the perspective that we do, and to just kind of look back on those things as fondly as we do, then I'm not going to change a minute of it. I wouldn't. Hey, right just for our listeners who may not be 100% familiar with what Yacht Rock is, before we take off here, uh, can you give me just kind of a really brief uh, breakdown of what Yacht Rock actually is? We say that Yacht Rock is soft rock hits of the 70s and 80s. I also go a little bit further and say it was the music that I could never let my friends know that I loved <laughs> growing up because it wasn't cool and it was everything that I was introduced to in the dentist chair. So, so now, give, sh- give me now, some artist examples, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, Christopher Cross. Yeah. Hall and Oates. Uh, Kenny Loggins. Michael McDonald. Steely Dan. Boss Skaggs. Steely Dan. Boss Skaggs. The Doobie Marco, Brothers. Yeah. Doobies. Nice. Uh, and then, the, and then this is where it gets fun because in our band we have these wonderfully uh, spirited debates: what is yachty and what is not. Yacht or not? Um, yeah. There's a yachty scale that's on. Typically, the, the, the presence of either Kenny Loggins or Michael McDonald, if not both, ideally, uh, would qualify it as yacht rock. And that's why there's a song that came out a couple years ago by a bass player, a funk bass player named Thundercat, that's got uh, uh, Kenny Loggins and uh, Michael McDonald both guesting on it, and that's one of the few contemporary yacht rock sounds that I've heard. Um, yep. But this is something, Kevin, I don't know if you know this or not. You probably do because you, you, you've, again, forgotten more about this shit than I'll ever know. But the term itself, Yacht Rock, has a very deep Milwaukee tie. I didn't know that at all. Okay, Yacht Rock, uh, you, you know, I'm not giving any news to you, but people who, who are listening, there was a, um, just before YouTube, before we could actually put videos online, and that was uh, like 2004, you could put videos, but there wasn't like a clearinghouse for it. Um, a couple of guys from Milwaukee uh, who did well in comedy in Milwaukee, Dan Harmon and um, Rob Schraub. Uh, Dan Harmon, of course, went on to be the showrunner for Community and Rick and Morty, and Rob Schraub uh, wrote Monster House and also worked on the Sarah Silverman program. But they were members of a seminal Milwaukee improv troupe called the Dead Ale Wives, who split off of uh, um, uh, comedy sports because they wanted to be able to do blue humor, and comedy sports is famously family-friendly. But they went out to L.A., uh, on the invitation of some folks who, who obviously were going to help their careers, and they started a weekly viewing party that was traveling around the different bars and different coffee houses and things uh, called Channel 101. And the idea was that local filmmakers who maybe didn't get any distribution could make short, up to five-minute films, and they would come and they, they called them episodes. And if you could play your episode and it got enough of an audience response through voting, you could make another episode. You got renewed for another episode. You, you could create a series. And one of the series, Lonely Island actually came out of that, but one of the series was created was a fictionalized version of the Yacht Rock scene in the 70s and 80s called Yacht Rock. And it featured fictionalized versions of Kenny Loggins and Michael McDonald navigating that whole thing. So the the term Yacht Rock came out of a couple guys from Milwaukee who went to L.A. and started a uh, a small film festival. So J.D. Risner was also part of that group. And he's the name that I know was associated with coining the Yacht Rock phrase. 
funny enough, he and I have had a Twitter feud <laughs> for a little time. Um, you know, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a feeling of just because you coined the phrase doesn't make you the king you didn't own it. on the throne. It means that we all adopt it and can use it in our own unique ways now that the world has has figured out or continues to figure out what Yacht Rock is. Well, now but you have some ammunition you can hit him with because it wouldn't be, they wouldn't have had a platform to create that series if not for a couple guys from Milwaukee who went to L.A. I love that. That's so cool. How, how, how like, uh, kind of reassuring that, you know, uh, from a Yacht Rock band from Milwaukee is now also part of well, that history. So no better place for a Yacht Rock band from Milwaukee to come out and start making waves. Because, yeah, I mean, uh, the reason uh, uh, Random Max shared members with the Dead Alewives are... Our two guitarists, our, well, our, our rhythm guitarist was one of their founding members, and, and when some of those guys left and went to L.A., our, our uh, lead guitarist was also a member of that, that troupe. And so and we were we, we, we were booked to play with them every couple of weeks, and if, if somebody canceled, we got called to go and do that show. So we were kind of their house band. See, what I remember about you, Jim, is you are the, like the wittiest and <laughs> smartest. And, it has and been funniest, a few years. One of the funniest guys that I had ever met at Mars Music. <laughs> it was so awesome having you there you had just this unique personality that was super quick and super witty and uh wonderful and and, and am i remembering correctly that you used to do improv as well i, I did take some improv classes and 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 uh, tried to do some stand-up in milwaukee but again That's those things are tough to yeah, do yeah. because you know there's just not a scene for those things either but my, my favorite yeah. memory of uh, of you and this was really really fun uh, i don't remember who it was in we were hanging out in the drum department it was another like slow tuesday morning or something and you were working in in pro audio and i was over in drums and we wound up kind of you know hanging out a lot somebody we worked with i can't remember um i had just for i don't know how i even fell into this but i i went to some uh novelty store and i picked up a uh the little a little uh, disappearing scarf magic trick and i just kept it in my pocket in case kids came into the store and so i was kind of practicing it behind the counter and somebody came in and was like oh holy shit how'd you do that and uh, I just kind of did it again. And, you know, you don't want to do it more than once or twice because somebody will figure it out. And then uh, they're like, holy shit. And then you walked in and said something. And I said, uh, I, I, I knew enough about you to know that you you kind of just were a, kind of, uh, just an all-around entertainer. And so I, I uh, palmed you the, uh, the trick and said, you can do it too, can't you? And you just went, yeah. And you pulled it out flawlessly. And whoever we were doing it in front of was like, holy shit, how do both of you guys know how to make a scarf disappear? And I can't even tie my shoes in the morning. So I we just, we had a good time. you say that. And you know what? I, I, I'm looking in my desk drawer because I keep one with me all the time. <laughs> no, no joke. No, no lie. Of course. Um, Fantastic and beautiful. I, it is. I can't find it because we obviously just moved. Yeah. But, um, it has been living in my desk drawer for probably six or seven years because you just never know when you need to. No. Practice. No. You never know when you're going to need to drop a little bit of, of surprise the, and delight into somebody's it's perfect, afternoon. It's the perfect icebreaker. Fantastic. Well, Kevin, I can't thank you enough for coming on to the podcast and sharing some stories with us. Uh, it's I can't thank you guys enough for inviting me. This was a big honor. Thank you so much. Oh, well, us the too. honor is all ours, my friend. And uh, uh, why don't you let people know where they can find you on social media, on the Internet? How can people get a hold of you? Really simple. Uh, the Docksiders are uh, on all social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, just at the Docksiders, uh, all one word, uh, and the same thing with me personally. It's just Kevin Sucker, at Kevin Sucker on Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter as well. Kevin spelled like it sounds. The Sucker is S U C H E R. Just Google my boy, and you'll be able to find him. And I encourage you to do that because, yeah, in addition to all the great stuff you've done in your career, the Docksiders. I mean, I have not seen you in, in person yet. I'm going to remedy that in the next couple of months. But um, just such an amazing show and. Uh, 
you know, all, all the attention and all the, the kudos and, and, uh, and the, the news clip that I watched with you on, on the local news in Vegas, uh, hanging out with Tony Orlando and talking to uh, some of the local anchors, getting the word out. I just, I could not be happier for you. It's, it's always, mm-hmm. it's always nice when a, when a, when a local boy makes good, but when, when somebody who genuinely has just put in the work and, and truly deserves it, does it, it's just, it's that much more gratifying. Thank you so much. This Thank is you. a lot of fun, guys. Well, for all of Happy holidays if we it? don't speak soon. And and let's connect before we get back in January. Love it. Absolutely. Well, awesome. thank you guys all for listening to another episode of the Fuel Your Fandom Podcast. If you want to reach out and get in touch with us, you can do that in a couple of different ways. You can hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Fuel Your Fandom. Uh, you can send us an email, fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. The backup Gmail address is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com, and that is if you want to be a guest on the show, have an idea for a show, want to send us pie recipes, what have you. Uh, we are also on Instagram at at Fuel Your Fandom. We're on what's left of Twitter at at Fuel underscore Your, and you can find us any place you dig up fine podcasts, your Stitchers, your iHeartRadios, your Audibles, your Spotify's, wherever you go and however you get us in your ear holes, we are happy you get us in your ear holes, and thank you so much. And again, once again, this episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Extra Wallets. E-K-S-T-E-R dot com. Head on over to Exter and uh, pick yourself up one of these fantastic wallets like me and Jim have been using. They're great. They, uh, they're hard working, built to last, and uh, they will set you back too bad. And they are a fantastic buy. And if you go and you enter our promo code FANDOM at checkout, you'll get an extra 10% off. So We highly recommend you do that. E-K-S-T-E-R dot com. Use promo code FANDOM. But from Jim and I, we want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Fuel Your Fandom Podcast. And please do remember that everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care. I gotta tell you something, I'm really excited about it. Uh, For the first time today, I woke up, I came to the store, and I I feel confident to say to you that if you don't take this Michael McDonald DVD that you've been playing for two years straight off, I'm going to kill everyone in the store and put a bullet in my brain. David, what do you suggest we play? I don't care, anything. Nothing against him, but if I hear Yamo be there one more time, I'm going to Yamo burn this place to the ground.